I want us to kind of understand the, the whole arc of where we've been since January as we're looking at a lot of these Old Testament s stories. And I think that, uh, for me anyway, it, it can be a little bit confusing. Even when we first mapped out the order that we were going to talk about these characters, the kind of the order of these sermons, you have, um, you have uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and then Esther, here in the in the Old Testament, then then uh, Job, and then we start to get these uh, the Psalms and the, all the wisdom literature and the major prophets and then the minor prophets, and so we get to this place. So if if we're just looking at my Bible, here's 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 Nehemiah actually at the end of Esther in my Bible, and then after all of these pages, at the very end of the New Testament. We're getting to people like Zechariah and Malachi, who he just said, the contemporary prophet. So these things are, are, are happening. They're, they're not unfolding in chronological order the way that they're arranged in our scripture, just so we knew that. So the sort of historical books are kind of lumped together, and then the wisdom writings, and then the prophets are put together. And so sometimes it's hard for us to envision where we are in the overall story, but we're getting actually very close to the end of the Old Testament, uh, Zechariah is near the end. Malachi is the last book in our in our Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament actually Chronicles was the very last book in the Hebrew Bible. And so it's just it's helpful for us to see kind of where we are in the overall uh, arc of this story and what's been happening because we've seen over the past few months God's people just slide deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. They're farther and farther away from God and He's. Uh, through the prophets, he's been warning them, um, Assyria is going to come. So he tells the northern tribe of Israel, Assyria is going to come and they're going to decimate you. Please repent. And they don't repent. And Assyria comes and they really do. They just scatter the people in such a way that um, those tribes never are really recovered. We, we may see that as we look at Nehemiah today. And then uh, the, he says I'm in Hosea, what we looked at a few weeks ago, I'm going to do this to Israel, but the southern kingdom of Judah I'm going to have mercy on. And then the prophets start to tell the people in Judah, it's in Jerusalem in that area, pay attention to what happened to your sister or the same thing will happen to you. And Judah doesn't listen and so Babylon comes and destroys them and then later on Persia takes over from, uh, takes the Babylonians over and, and so we just see God's people just carried off into exile. And then after that we saw um, uh, Daniel, where we saw Ezekiel, who's actually writing from exile, and then we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then we saw Daniel. Those stories happening in uh, Babylon slash Persia, and um, now finally we're we're getting back to the place where the the people are being freed from their exile and. Uh, brought back. So what happens is basically you have Israel, you have Judah, they're carried off into their exile places and their hearts start to be turned back to God. You can sort of be reminded of what was happening in Egypt when the people kind of went their own way and then the longer they were there, the harder their life was, they would say, oh God, have you forgotten us? And their hearts would be turned back to God and they would cry out to him for deliverance. And that's what they're doing here in uh, Babylon. And so uh, you got to see uh, last week when Derek was here and talking about uh, Ezra, the people start to make the trip back, right? They, they rebuild the temple and the people are starting to get back there. They're, they're teaching the law again. The temple's there. The law's being taught and, and uh, things are on the right track. 
the people are getting back to where they're supposed to be. And so we get to Nehemiah, and we start to see his effort about rebuilding the wall. And so we want to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, although we are going to kind of bounce basically across the whole book, and we're going to, we're going to not look at all 13 chapters, but we're going, to, we're going to end at the end of Nehemiah today. But first, let's, let's uh, do pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, your word, and, and Lord, we thank you for the way that you preserve these uh, historical accounts from Israel so that we, as your people, could learn from these stories. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, and, and Lord, I pray that you would help me to rightly teach and that we would rightly apply your word to our hearts and to our lives. And so we pray that you would just bless it as we read it, as we talk about it, think about it over the next few minutes. Would you be glorified? Lord, lead us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter, uh, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. That's in, uh, that's in modern day Iran. Susa is in Iran. And uh, there's still a city. It's, I think, the oldest uh, or the longest inhabited city maybe in the history of the world. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, uh, Hanani, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and um, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your, uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah's gotten this job where he's the cupbearer to the king. He's sitting in the proximity with the, with the, with the ruler at that time. And he, he asks about this report. His, his brothers come back and he's, he's asking, how are things going in Jerusalem? What's happening in that place? And uh, he gets this report that the homeland really is just 
a mess. It's a mess, right? Listen to the words that the, that the guy uh, uses to describe the former heart of the Jewish civilization, right? This is the most important place in the world for them. He says, remnant, right? You know that word? That's like when you put down a carpet and then uh, you say, well, I have this weird shape. And so you just cut that part off and throw it away. That's what a remnant is, right? You just left this leftover piece that you have no use for. He says remnant. He says trouble, shame. He describes the city as broken down. And this news is just devastating for Nehemiah. He just weeps and he mourns and he fasts for days before the Lord. He's praying and he's worshiping God and he's calling his mind and calling God's mind back to God's own faithfulness and that God made this promise to keep a covenant with his people. Nehemiah is really clear. He's praying and saying, God, we sinned. We did exactly what you said would, would, we would do. And you did exactly what you said you would do. You've scattered us out. We deserve it. We sinned and we absolutely deserve to be treated this way. And then he goes back and actually in verses uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 1, he quotes from a couple of places. One is in Leviticus. Let's turn there if you don't mind. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the third book. Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 26. In, in verse 33 is really what he kind of quotes or paraphrases. In verse 26, 33, it says, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall become a desolation and your cities a waste. This is exactly what happens, right? This is early on, God says, here are the commands. If you don't follow them, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to scatter you. Your, your homeland is going to become an absolute waste. And then uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is next. Turn to Deuteronomy, the book after that. So the fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30. So in, in Leviticus... Twenty-six. It said, uh, "I will scatter you among the nations." And then in Deuteronomy thirty, verse one, it picks up like, picks up like this. And when all these things have come upon you, right? This, so this is the second telling of the law. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So. Early on, God said, here's what's going to happen. If you don't obey, you're going to be driven out. Then in Deuteronomy, he says, you're going to be driven out because you're not going to obey. And then, uh, so this is what he's saying here. This is long before he, they've been actually driven out. So, uh, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. 
and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. So Nehemiah is there in Susa and he's reminding himself and he's reminding God of these promises. You said you'd drive us out. If we disobeyed, we disobeyed. You drove us out. But also, God, you promised that if we would repent, you would bring us back. And so a big part of what he's done there in chapter 1 is to say, we repent. I'm so sorry. I sinned. My father sinned. My people sinned. Lord, please forgive us and restore us and bring us back to the place that you would have us to be. And so he has this confidence, not because of Israel's ability to repent or their ability to do the right thing, but he has this confidence that's based in God's character. He's sitting there in exile in uh, Persia, and he's remembering about the goodness of God and saying, God, we can trust you, and I know you're going to bring us back to where we're supposed to be. And so then chapter 2 starts, and Nehemiah is in there and with the king, and the king says, what's the matter? And then Nehemiah kind of explains to him, and he says, I want to go back. And not only does the king at this point give Nehemiah permission to go back, the king pays for everything. He provides the armed guard like we saw. And, and Nehemiah says, oh yeah, could I stop here and pick up a bunch of timber? And could I do this and do that? And the king's like, yeah, go do everything you need to do. And, and uh, you just go. And so the king sends them back and he, uh, and he pays for the rebuilding. Now, they, they do go through this period as they're rebuilding in chapter 3 and um, the next chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. They have this tremendous opposition. They have tremendous opposition as people come along and say, oh, are you going to build a wall? Isn't that cute, right? And then they attack them. They mock them, and then they physically attack them. And they have all these difficulties that come along with, um, with rebuilding this wall and trying to fortify Jerusalem. But they get the job done. It's like miraculous how quickly they are able to reestablish this wall around Jerusalem, and they're getting things back to the where they're supposed to be, right? We got the temple, we got the law being taught, we get the wall back around Jerusalem, and they're getting back to where they need to be. Now look at chapters 8 and 9. That's one of the things it mentions in the video there, that they had this tore up marathon, right? They build this platform and Ezra gets up and I think he has everybody stand for the reading of God's word and they just start to read and the people just start weeping. They just start weeping because they're hearing all of this and Ezra says, no, 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 no. This is the time for us to celebrate. We're back. We got the temple. We got the law. We got the wall and now we're going to celebrate and they read and they celebrate and they feast and they have this uh, great time and they're coming across information like the, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, it's called sometimes. And it's this thing that, that Israel had to remind them of when they were uh, homeless, basically moving around, living in these little shelters. And so this week, every year, they were supposed to make up shelters out of uh, leaves and things, and they were supposed to basically camp in their cities and just remind themselves where God had brought them. And so they come across this thing. What about the Feast of the Tabernacles? Whoa, that's about that time. And they celebrate this Feast of the Tabernacles, which they hadn't done in Jerusalem in decades. They haven't done it for a long, long time. And so they're in this place where they're just uh, reading and they're hearing. And as they're learning, then they're saying, we need to do that. We need to obey. And they build up their tabernacles and they get themselves ready. And this is how, this is how it's supposed to be going. 
They're back in their place. They've got their building. They've got their law. They're hearing and they're obeying and they're doing the things that they're supposed to do. They're confessing their sin and they're uh, making these vows. And I, I think it's in verse, in chapter 8. Yeah, chapter 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So 8.8 eight, eight tells us they're reading the law, they're explaining the law, they're teaching, and the people are just uh, obeying. And then chapter 9, it talks about how the people of Israel start to confess their sins and they renew the covenant. The covenant they actually write all this stuff down and people sign their name to it. They're like, we're, God, we're back. We're going to do what we're supposed to be doing. We're back. And then they um, go about these kind of things. And if we look at chapters uh, 9 and we look at uh, 10 and we look at chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see these people doing what they're supposed to do for the most part. But here's the, here's the challenge. Flip over to 13. Let me just read the first seven verses of chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, right? So again, new information for them. They're reading, no Ammonites, no Moabites. Those people are completely shut out. We don't have them uh, in our assembly. Verse 2. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against, against them to curse them, Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they're hearing and they're obeying. We're not supposed to have these people in. We won't have these people in. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, listen to verse 6, because I think it's really important. Nehemiah says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. So everybody had been doing what they were supposed to do. And then Nehemiah went back to Susa. And while Nehemiah has gone to Susa, things just sort of fall apart. Right? Nehemiah is not there on top of things. And things just... Things just fall apart. He says in verse 6, While these things were happening, I wasn't, I wasn't there. Verse 7, And I came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So here's basically what this means. If you, if you just read through the whole book, every time that they have problems with the construction of the wall, Tobiah is right in the middle of it. Right? Tobiah comes by mocking. Tobiah stirs up other people to try to get, get the construction to stop. Tobiah sends back word to the king that Nehemiah is trying to set up his own kingdom to get Nehemiah in trouble with the king of uh, Babylon there with Artaxerxes. Uh, Tobiah actually even tries at some point to call Nehemiah out of the city because there's a plan to kill him. Like Tobiah has been a problem the whole... He has fought them every step of the way. And Nehemiah goes back to Susa, and Tobiah, an Ammonite, listen, is not just in the assembly, he's living in the temple. 
He's living in the temple. And when Nehemiah comes back, he finds this out and he just goes absolutely crazy. Like he goes completely ballistic, right? In the U.S. we might say he goes off the rails. Nehemiah is going around and he's beating people up and he's pulling their hair out and he's chasing people through the city. He takes all of Tobiah's stuff out of the temple and throws it into the street. Like he goes completely crazy. That's just mayhem, right? He just, he just can't. And then the book ends. And so I think, what in the world, right? Sort of like what the video said. What in the world? Like, how are we supposed to be thinking about these things? Or why do the people get to this spot? That's why I think it's so important to think about this book in its place in the Old Testament. Because all the sermons I've ever heard on Nehemiah have to do with uh, our church is building a building. So let's build with, let's be faithful and let's build and let's give and let's work together. And, uh, our, our sword in one hand and our building materials in the other. And let's be faithful and let's be, uh, let's be people who have a good plan and stick to our good plan. And what a great leader Nehemiah was and all these kind of things. But I think that the, the real thing that, uh, that I've not I've not seen so clearly until I've spent the last few weeks looking and thinking about this. Nehemiah has this vision to rebuild the wall, but he doesn't have a vision to rebuild the people. And so he starts with the wall physically without rebuilding the people. Even though they're getting to this place where they're reading and people are trying to obey and those kind of things, they're, they're, completely, they're completely doing this in their own flesh. Here's the law. Okay, yeah, we'll keep it. We'll do it. We'll do all of those things. Here's what I want us to see, right? They, the Israel lays there in captivity and they say, God, I really want this thing. I really want this thing. I really, really, really want this thing. And what they want is to go back. And God says, okay, you can have the thing that you want. But when they get back, what they realize is they wanted the wrong thing. Right? They laid there and they thought about the temple and they thought about the city and they thought about the walls and they thought about their homeland. And the thing that made their homeland special was that it was God's place. But God wasn't there when they got back. He said, "Go, yeah, go on back. But He wasn't, he wasn't there. This is the, the, the big story, I think, that we see through the Scripture. God wants to be with His people. God wants to be with His people. Okay? He wants to be with His people. So He made a garden, and He made people, and He put them in there, and He was, he was with them. But the people said, we would really rather have it some other way. And so God said, okay, then get out. And then He makes this promise, right? He calls Abraham out and says, listen, Abraham, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be with you. And Abraham says, that's really... That's really great. But the people don't continue to do what they're supposed to do, and they end up as slaves in Egypt, cut off from God. And they're crying out, God, we want you. And he says, okay. And he brings them out of Egypt, and they wander through the desert, and God's with them, right? He gives them this, this uh, tabernacle. He gives them Moses to lead them. And the, the people just won't do what they're supposed to do. And so God pulls them close, and then they rebel, and God pushes them away. God gives Himself to them as a leader, right? When you hit the book of Judges, God is saying, I am your leader, you are my people, I love you, 
this guy is going to help you or this lady is going to help you. I'm your leader. This person is going to help you. And the people together say, we want a king like all the other nations have a king. God's saying, I want to be with you. And they're saying, why can't we have a king like they have a king? And God says, fine, have a king. Right? And they get Saul. But it's this pattern of God saying, I want to be with you. And the people are continually saying, we, we, but we actually want something else. We don't, we don't want to be with you. He gives them this promised land. He gives them a temple with his presence. And you know what? That whole time they're saying, man, we just love the Ammonite God. We just love Baal. We love this. We love all the other gods that are around us. And so God sends them off finally into exile. And they're laying there thinking about the things that they're missing. They're thinking about their home and their land. And they're thinking about their temple and their city. And they want to go back. But what they're missing is those things are just pictures and they're only pictures. Those things are important because God was in those things. The temple was important because God was in the temple. God, that's where God was dwelling with His people. He was saying, I'm right here and you can come to me and you can meet me. That's what the temple was for them. God was in there. He had this like mercy seat and a place to bring your offering and sacrifice. People knew where God was. These things are just, they're just symbols though, right? Look how these symbols point forward. These symbols all through the Old Testament point forward. They have their deliverance from Egypt, which is really just a picture of this ultimate deliverance that you and I will have in Jesus. We're just, someday we're going to be finally delivered, right? No more sickness, no more sin, no more separation from family. That, no, we're, we're just going to... These things that mark our life now, they won't be like that because we'll be delivered. We have this uh, picture of the tabernacle or the temple, right? This is God living among His people. But in the end, God's people will live with Him in a different way, right? Not just in some temple behind a curtain that we can't actually see. It's going to be, that's just a picture of what we're going to have. God's going to, we're going to live with Him. The Jews got these tablets, right, with the Ten Commandments. They, they could somehow know the thoughts of God. But that's this thing that points forward, that later on the, the, the Scripture's telling us, they're not going to need a teacher, because I'm just going to write my law in their heart. They're just going to know it. They get these kings, right? They get David and his descendants and all these promises that are pointing to this ultimate true king that we're going to have later, Jesus, who's going to be our king forever. They have this promised land, which is a picture of heaven, that they're going to be uh, a place where they can go and, and have peace and rest forever. So they come back and they rebuild their temple, they rebuild their city, and they miss the fact that the things that they've been missing aren't really the things they're missing. Those things were made special because of God, because God was with them. They come back and and, and then they see God, God's not here. God's not here. And, and God's not there because their hearts were never changed. Their hearts were never, ever changed. They got back the form, but not the thing that, the, that made the form have value. And so they, in their spirit, sort of stirred themselves up to do better. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you think, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to do better. Right? I used to smoke when I was a teenager. I was a smoker. And, uh, and so I would say, that's it, man. This is, 
this is my last pack, right? I never quit in the middle of a pack. I always quit at the end of a pack. Right? I would smoke my last cigarette. Then I would throw the empty pack away. This is my last pack. And then like 15 minutes later, you're right? Thinking, man, I think I've proven what I needed to prove, right? I can. And when I tried to change my behavior just through trying to change my behavior, I always, always failed. I always failed. So they, they had their desire to change. And you know what? When the excitement wore off and when Nehemiah left town, then they went right back to their sin. In Exodus 33, Israel's sin with this golden calf, right? Moses went up and they said, hey, Aaron, build a, build a statue for build us a God. Because we don't, man, what's happened to Moses? We don't, we don't know where that guy's gone, what's going to happen with him. And so after that, God tells Moses, go ahead, and, go ahead and take the people and go on to the promised land. And there's going to be an angel that comes and leads you the rest of the way. And Moses says, if you're not going, I'm not going. Right? He basically begs and says, please don't send us out if you're not going to go with us. And God says, not going. Because if I go, 100% chance I'm going to kill you people, all of you. Because you're stiff-necked and I, it just... He said, I know how it's going to turn out. You're going to be rebellious, and I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, if you're not going to go, please don't send us away from your presence. Moses is saying, for me, your presence is more important than the promised land. Please don't send us. I'd rather live here in the desert with you than live in the promised land without you. I don't want the, the land that's flowing with milk and honey if I, if I don't have you. So they missed the city. They missed the temple. They missed their homeland, but they didn't miss the thing that made all of, the, all of that worthwhile. They weren't missing God. Okay, here's how we end. How, what are we supposed to do about that? Here's uh, just a couple of things. I think first, as the video is talking about, we need new hearts. We need new hearts. Unless our hearts are changed, we will always choose to sin against God. I don't even think we're free to not choose, right? I think that even in our best moments, right, I'll do something nice, uh, and if I do, you know, like some, maybe a beggar comes along and I do something, I hear, man, here's five ring it. And then when the person moves on, I think, what a solid guy, right? What a great person I am. I just gave that. He can't help me, but I still helped him, right? And I just have this pride. Even when I try to do the right thing, I, I do the wrong thing, right? And so we, we, we can't really judge Israel as much as we want to. We, want, we can't judge Israel for continuing to do the wrong thing because we are all people who continue to do the wrong thing apart from having our heart changed. So that's the first thing. We need new hearts. Second thing is this. We cannot change our own hearts. This is the good news, I think. This is what the story is about. Like he's saying, get you to keep on reading. Like, man, what's going to happen? I think the point is... As hard as you work, as much as you have, you can't change your own heart. So then you need to just repent, right? The people repented when Ezra read the word. They worked on changing their behavior. They signed these pledges. They signed their vows. But at the point when they should have been crying out saying, oh, there's no way that I can do that. There's no way that I can do that. God, you have to help me. They said, okay, tabernacle, let's build one. Let's do that. Tents, let's do it. Come on, camp out. We're in. And they said, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it. They weren't looking to God to fulfill the promises through them. And so I think for us, we need our hearts changed. We can't change our own hearts. And so we just cry out and we ask Him to change those hearts. Here's the third thing. 
we really need to recognize that God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. I'm trying to think of it was Matt Chandler, I think a preacher that I like in the United States. He likes to say, if it's him, God doesn't love some perfect version of you or some future version of you. God loves you. God loves you. And He wants to be with you. And so all of these kind of Old Testament stories we've been looking at all year are pointing us to the fact that God is pursuing a people. He's running after this people, including you, including me. So we can't be satisfied with anything less than God Himself. We can't be satisfied by saying, well, I'm a, I'm, shoot, man, I'm a Christian. Got baptized, I'm a member of a church. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path. We, we're, oh, I'm doing ministry, I'm helping out, something. That's not, that's not what God's after, right? Being in church, coming to church every week, any of those kind of things. You can't be satisfied with that stuff. You can only allow yourself to be satisfied with Christ. God wants you, so then I would say, come to Him and He will give you a new heart. Last thing is this, religion is a dead end. And we are, as Christians, just as guilty as everyone else about that. Uh, the kids today are looking at some of the Ten Commandments. I think they're looking at the Fourth Commandment today, about maybe about the Sabbath. And so I was just telling Angie last night, don't, don't teach it a, in a moralistic sort of way. Keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. Take a day off. God loves you if you take a day off. That's not what the Ten Commandments are for. This law-keeping is a dead end. Whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, and you're just following through the rituals of a religion, it is a dead end. These things that we are uh, seeing in Christianity, they're pointing us to this ultimate future reality. That's what we need to have our, our hope in. The fact that Christ came, that He lived the life that we should have lived, and that He died in our place so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with God. All this rule-keeping, all the rituals that we do, these things will never, ever, ever save us. They can't save us. We have to realize that religion is about us making ourselves right with God, right? We're trying to raise ourselves up so that He'll be able to receive us. But you're never going to be good enough to be received like that. We instead just abandon ourselves and say, Lord, there's no way I can do it unless you're willing to come and take me. So we need this right relationship with God through Christ, and that is the only way that it works. Through His death, Jesus paid for our sin debt. Wages of sin is death. Jesus died on our behalf. He also lived a perfect life. And so all these things that He did to obey are credited to our account. So not only am I sinless in God's sight through Christ, I'm also perfectly obedient. And let me give you a, a hint. I'm not perfectly obedient. Like, I miss it way more often than I get it right. And so I'm completely trusting in Christ. Even when I do two things right, I'm doing a hundred things wrong. Or if I'm not doing something wrong, I'm not doing the right thing that I ought to do, right? I'm, there's just so much that I don't do. And so I just have to say, Lord, just, I just trust you with all of that. I trust you with my sin, and I trust you with the righteousness and the obedience all that thing as well. So I would say, here's where you are. You come to Him. You confess in faith. Lord, I need you. And, and if you've never been saved, you say, I've been trying to do this on my own, and I can't do it. And so I need you to save me. Or if you're a believer and you're walking, then you have to be in this place where you're day by day realizing we can't live the life that we need to live without His Spirit living in us and, and this day by day walking with Him. Right? Right? Uh, instead, I, 
I image out the world most of the time rather than imaging out Christ the way that I'm supposed to image out Christ to the people that are around me. I get upset, right? Oh, that guy cut me off for these, right? That person won't wait in line. And this, blah, 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 blah. I get mad about all these things and I'm just showing myself to be exactly like the world. So even to live the life that we're supposed to live, we need the grace of Jesus working in us moment by moment. I'm glad it's my wife in there today since I'm going long enough that you won't be mad at me because you're not teaching Sunday school. Okay, let's pray and we'll commit the rest of this day to the Lord. Father, we, we really are thankful for people like uh, Nehemiah and don't at all want to detract from the fact that he was brokenhearted over the way that his people were going and he stepped in there and he was uh, aggressive in his own life about trying to do something about that. But Father, at the end of our lives, we do not want to have a huge pile of accomplishments that we, um, that we accomplished that ultimately didn't last and produce fruit that lasts. And so we pray that you would help us day by day, moment by moment, to be people who are relying on you, trusting in you, that you are moving in us and through us, helping us to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. Uh, Father, for those who maybe uh, really never have been saved and, and just maybe haven't even been aware of it until this morning, I pray that you would save them. Lord, help them to see that you are willing to forgive them, that you'll give them a new heart, that you love them and have been pursuing them and that you want to be with them. And then for those who are with you already, Lord, help us to be mindful uh, that we need you all around us, above and below and beside and before and behind. Lord, otherwise the people that are around us won't be seeing Christ in us. They'll just be seeing our own flesh that's leaking out constantly through the cracks. And so we just pray that you would help us to live in abandonment to you. God, thank you that you love us. We pray, God, for again for those who are traveling and we pray that you would help us uh, Lord, as we move through this week to be uh, honoring to you and, Lord, a blessing to you and um, a light that, uh, that is useful, a tool that is useful, uh, Lord, a life that is useful to Christ. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.